and there was a man which had a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he saith unto the man that had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? They held their peace. And we looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. He saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored, whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would help us, Lord, as we come into your presence. <clears throat> we acknowledge that this is not a meeting of men, so much as it is the meeting of men with God. A men coming into the presence of God with hearts that desire to hear him speak, to see him move, to see transformation in their own lives, that they might be made more like Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would empower this service, that you would enable us to do what it is that you've given us to do in this life. Father, we ask for your mercy, for your favor, and for your help. Though we be undeserving, we ask for it in mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was a boy, we had a garden, and to me, as a boy, the garden seemed huge. Absolutely massive. Now, it really wasn't that big. It wasn't really that big at all. But I remember my dad telling me to go out to this garden and weed it. Now, I was a little guy. I was about six or seven years old. <clears throat> and weeding the garden, to me, seemed like a very big job. And my dad explained to me that I was supposed to pull up the weeds by the roots. And as I went through the garden that day, I quickly found out that pulling the weeds by the roots for that little hand was a lot of work. And it was a lot easier just to kind of pick off the top of the weed. And so my dad would come out and check, it, check on it and see that it was done. And gradually, after a little while, I went through the whole garden just picking off the tops of the weeds and allowing those weeds to thereby remain in the ground and in the garden. We went back out to the garden another week later because my dad said I needed to weed it again. And having to weed the garden a second time was necessary. There was a carpet of weeds now on the ground and we had to do it again because we never got to the root. How many of you have dealt with roots that have not been taken up in your own garden, maybe in your drive? Maybe um, in the place where you work, you were doing some weeding, and you know if you don't get the root, it's going to come back. When we deal with anger, oftentimes the way that we deal with anger is a very surface treatment of anger. We deal with anger in a way that seems to control it. It seems to diminish it. It seems to put it in a certain place, in a certain part of our life. But this morning, and this evening, I want to show you a deeper way to deal with anger and a better way to deal with anger. A way to deal with anger that is much, much more powerful than perhaps you've ever dealt with anger before. But you have to be going, willing to go with me deeper. You've got to go deeper 
into anger. If you're ever going to defeat it, if you're ever going to get a true and lasting victory over anger, you've got to get down to the root. Now, where would we go for this? Of course, we would go to the Bible. But let's explore a little bit why we would go to the Bible. The Bible is a book of anger. As you read the Bible, you'll read a lot of angry people in the Bible. There's a lot of people that are, have a lot of frustration, that are, have a lot of angst within them. So as we read through the patriarchs, Abraham and Jacob uh, with uh, Laban, you see anger, Esau, um, and Jacob are, um, express great anger. We see anger with Moses a few times and actually disqualifies him from finishing God's will for his life. We see anger in the Psalms. We see Proverbs teaching us about the danger of anger. We see Herod very angry as he murders all of the little babies. We see anger in the, among the, uh, the disciples. We see anger in the early church as Peter and Paul begin to preach to it and begin to counsel it on how they should deal with this anger. What the Bible's doing is it's giving you a snapshot of anger. It's actually giving you a lot of different pictures of what anger looks like and also revealing to you the danger of anger. So the Bible is an excellent, superb source on how to deal with anger because it gives it an extensive treatment. If you want to know how to deal with an anger in your life, then come to the Word of God and allow it to have its place. So this morning, we will define anger. Basically, we're going to get a handle on what anger is because until we really understand anger, we can never actually deal with anger. And in the evening service at 5 p.m., we will have the second part of this message where we will look at the heart of anger, the spiritual solution to anger, the way that God said we can have victory over that anger. We'll touch on that a little bit this morning, but really we'll have a more full and complete treatment of that this evening. One of the things that makes anger so hard to deal with is it's so universal. Anger is expressed in your life, perhaps somewhat through you, but through people around you. It is so pervasive. Anger is so omnipresent in the world around us that it's really hard for us to categorize it. It's something that we see so much. How do we really identify what this, this, this seemingly universal trait is among people? Every culture in every age has had anger and has been blighted by that anger. When you look at the Bible, you'll see it brimming to the surface, crushing relationships and wounding individuals and causing great damage. I remember hearing a story of a live assassination of a, of a TV reporter and her cameraman four years ago in Virginia. And the man that did it was known as a powder, powder keg. Uh, he was known to people around him as someone who would, could just go off in anger. And that anger gave vent eventually to a murderous rage. And it's interesting, and we'll see in a little while, that anger actually is closely related to murder. And it shows us that there's a definite link between murder and anger, that a lot of murder is actually committed in a spirit or out of a heart that is very, very angry. 
Think about all of the anger that you see in the media as the media begins to try and define Christians as evil or as their values as something which is against their leftist agenda. As they begin to portray us with anger and then we can perhaps respond to that portrayal with anger back to them. Perhaps at work you've known angry people. Perhaps in your family you've known, grown up with anger. Perhaps as a parent you use anger to control. And can I say as a parent that is the worst way to parent. That if your children do not obey because of what you told them to do, that you become angry, you become enraged, and you manipulate them, and they do what you want them to do because you're angry. And you're using your anger as a tool. That anger is destructive, it is sinful, and it is ruinous, and is something that we cannot allow to be a part of the world that we live in. As believers, we are not exempt from anger. Sometimes anger will show up in churches, will show up in families, it will show up in the daily world in which we live. And so again, if we are going to have a victory of anger, over anger, we are going to have to get rid of the nebulous idea of the general concept that somebody is upset, they're agitated. Anger is a lot deeper than that. It has a lot more tentacles that reach into our souls. And so I want to give you this big, long definition of anger by a guy named Robert Jones. It's a bit unwieldy, but it is actually um, very useful. And I want to go through this and take this apart a little bit so you can see what anger is. Anger is our whole person response. Negative moral judgment against what you think is evil, what you perceive to be evil. So think through this with me real quickly. Anger is active. So to better understand anger, always understand anger is not simply a state of mind. When someone is angry, they have a direction that they're going. There is something that they're doing. It's not just a position that is held that is static. And what I'm saying by this is you'll see in the further um, expression of the thought, the anger grows, anger becomes consuming. Anger is not something that we can hold on to. And even if you have righteous anger, which I'll talk about in a minute, you can only hold it until the end of the day. At which point anger has to be released. So anger is very active. Anger is also a whole person response. And it means it's not something that's compartmentalized. Anger is consuming. Anger is something that becomes a way of living. It becomes a behavior that we participate in. It involves more than just how you feel about something. It is your whole approach to something. Anger is also a response against something. Um, it is a response against what it is that we are facing the opposition that we're facing. Say you were disrespected um, by somebody. Say somebody treated you with contempt. Somebody did not recognize the contribution that you're making at work. And, there was, and somebody else is rewarded who you feel is making less of a contribution. The attitude against them, the desire to in some way have hostility um, acted on them is the response of anger. Anger is something that you, that you clearly are expressing, 
that is a part of who you are that is beginning to consume you. How many of you have ever sat at a light in the car? And the car in front of you is distracted and they don't go when the light turns green. And so you're watching the light and you're looking at the light and you're wondering when are they gonna go? And you don't wanna be rude, you don't wanna honk, you hold off on honking and then the light turns and as it turns they drive through the light. And you feel what? You feel a little frustration, I know. I mean, come on, we feel a little bit of anger that they held up traffic, you and all the cars behind you, and then they got through the light. And it's just that response of agitation, that response that you've been treated unfairly, that response of feeling provoked, that sense of feeling that you were dealt with in the wrong way in that particular situation. Another interesting thing about anger is Anger involves a moral judgment against someone. In other words, when you're angry, it is going to bring into, into order your ethics. And it's a, usually a personal sense of judgment. So when you get angry, it is something that you perceive to be right or wrong. Now, it is a personal sense, and most anger is sinful. There is a little bit of righteous anger that is possible, and God has perfect anger. However, most of the anger that we're expressing is because what we wanted was thwarted. What we thought should happen didn't happen because of what somebody did. The way that we thought things should be did not materialize. And we see that as wrong. So we've made a negative moral judgment. Think about it. Whenever you're angry, you're deciding that something that has happened to you had an ethical nature to it and it was wrong in your eyes. It was a wrong thing that happened. So anger is more than just an action. Anger is the judgment that your sense of right and wrong has been violated. What you thought was correct has been worked against and you are becoming angry. And you'll start to see how anger justifies itself through this moral judgment. In other words, I am right in holding this active response, this hostility towards someone because what they did was wrong. What they did was not the right thing. Look what they did. It was not right what they did. And therefore, it is not right. Well, I can be angry. It's vindicated. It's justified through the moral judgment that has just occurred. You see, with anger, it's tricky. Because anger is actually acting as a judge and a jury. It's not just observing or bringing a charge. Like the guards, if they observe a crime, the guards can arrest and charge with the crime, but they cannot try the crime. You see, when we become angry, we identify, we charge, but then we also try them and convict them of wrong. The, the, the wrong that is according to our sense, according to our interest, according to what we have determined is right or wrong. And that anger, when it comes from that moral judgment, which it always does, is therefore very powerful. Anger is a lot more powerful than most of us realize, a lot more pervasive than we realize. Look with me in Matthew 5 and verse 21. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21.
Matthew 5 and verse 21, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, Jesus referring to them, their quotation of the Old Testament commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That was their addition to the law. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, an unjust anger, will be in danger of the judgment. Well, that seems kind of strange, doesn't it? I mean, oh, we're looking at this and Jesus is saying, murder, yes. Murder is wrong. But hey, I'm saying to you, the murder is way more deep and pervasive than someone who has plunged the knife. Murder is an attitude. It is a disposition. It is a part of a person's heart. It is the way they think, the way they feel, what they allow to persist within them towards another person, towards a situation. And Jesus is actually equating anger with murder. Now think of that with me for a minute. You've heard by them as said of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Verse 22, but I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, with an unjust anger, shall be in danger of the judgment. We judge and we convict. We want them punished. The anger legitimizes the hate. It gives vent to expression. It says that it is okay. What they have done is wrong. It is unjust. And then we begin to express that in our heart, in our actions, and in our life. And I hope we're saying here that anger is very contrary to the spirit of a Christian, to the attitude of a Christian, that if you are walking around angry, hostile, hostility is within you. It's part of your heart. It's part of how you feel. It's part of how you approach the day. That is a very, very far, far removed person from where God wants you to be. Look with me in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 14. Notice what it says. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 14. First John chapter 3 and verse number 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. That's very interesting. The characteristic of a Christian is that they have passed from the old life, from the ways that they were to what God now is doing in their life, to the transformation that God has brought to their life. He says in verse 15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. You see, anger is just carrying out the hate. It is just the fulfillment of the ill will that is within a person. And I'm saying to you and I this morning that we cannot hold that anger. We cannot be a person of hostility and anger and be filled with the Holy Spirit and be ruled by love and peace and long-suffering and goodness. This love that God gives 
is a diametric opposite of what hate and anger is. But there is just so much anger. Like if I preach this and I teach this, it's really hard for us to get this because there's just so much anger. And anger is legitimized by the world and it's legitimized by our own sense of moral ethics that we determine this right and wrong. And it just becomes very pervasive. Anger also involves a judgment against, finally, what we perceive to be evil. So you and I have a moral compass, and every one of us knows right and wrong. We're, 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 it's, it's, it's refined by the family we were brought up in, the day that we live in, the culture and its values that'll all influence that moral compass. But the moral compass has a basic sense of right and wrong. It knows the Ten Commandments inwardly. Stealing is wrong, adultery is wrong, lying is wrong, murder is wrong. And when that moral compass becomes activated and it views that right and wrong in a personal sense, that right and wrong has wrong to me. It is wrong because of how I view it. That moral compass then becomes absolute. And what you'll see in anger is anger really is a sense of becoming God. Now that sounds really strong, it sounds really crazy, but you're acting as judge and jury. It's a moral judgment. There's a perceived evil based on the moral compass, based on what you think is right and wrong. And there is a legitimizing of hostility, a legitimizing of angst and dislike towards a person and towards a situation. Now not all, all anger is wrong. And sometimes you can see a great injustice and a great injustice without an act of indignation would be wrong. Not all anger is wrong, but the vast, vast majority of it is. Now there's a Puritan, a guy who lived about 400 years ago, and I came across his quote, Richard Baxter, and I thought it was good. This is what he says about anger. Anger is the rising up in the heart of passionate desire to destroy an apprehended evil. Remember? It is that moral conscience. You, you see it. You not only see it, you convict it, which would cross us to hinder uh, us to hinder us to some desired good. Would cross us or hinder us of some desired good, excuse me. So it comes from within. It is the evil that is in my eyes affected me, that has created this situation, that is frustrated and that has caused hardship, and it is a feeling of wanting some justice, of wanting some payback, of wanting something to happen, that, that, that agitation of ill will towards another person. Now, as we begin to look at what righteous anger is, I want you to start thinking of a question, and this will help you to unlock anger a lot better. How much of what I view as wrong is defined by the Bible as wrong? which means that we have to separate ourselves from the situation, which is really hard if it involves a family member or a close coworker. And if I'm looking at the anger and it's becoming consuming and it's really activated within me, then I have to ask myself how much of that anger is actually what the Bible has said is wrong? How much of my sense of right and wrong is actually linked to God's sense of right and wrong? Is my anger a displeasure based on what I wanted, based on what I thought should happen because of how it would influence me 
or the way I thought I should be treated? Or is it actually what God said is right or wrong? There's a big cure in anger in that realization. I want to show you three types of anger here really quick. The first kind of anger is divine anger, a right anger. So the whole lot of the Bible refers to God's displeasure or indignation towards sin. The most common Hebrew word is the noun, af. It's 181 of the 229 occurrences is God's um, anger towards sin. The verb, all 14 times, enaf, is God's anger. So anger, we could say, with the Lord is his judgment against evil. It's simply his perfect understanding of people and of their actions and of their words, and this is how he judges their sin. It's perfect. He sees evil, and he reacts appropriately towards that evil. He judges it. And we see that in the world which is around us, that it is always better to do good than to do bad, because if you do bad, then you experience, essentially, the judgment of God. God judges evil. It is not a perfect judgment now. It's not complete. Ultimately, the unsaved will stand at the great white throne of judgment, and God will judge their sin. His anger will have full and perfect vent at the great white throne. But in our world, God does restrain evil through his judgment. And so when there is evil, he will judge. He will move against that evil. He's the whole response. He never just has a partial view towards it. He never just says, well, this sin is okay, and this sin is acceptable, and then these are really bad, and we're going to judge these. This concept of venial and mortal sin is ridiculous. The Bible says nothing about venial and mortal sins. It simply says sin is sin, and God will always judge sin. Look with me in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number 39. And we'll see a picture here of God's judgment of sin. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For if I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever, or if I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies. I will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh. And that with the blood of slain and of the captains from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. So God is holy. And out of his perfect moral justice, there is a perfect response to sin. He always judges sin. Always. Every time there is sin, there is a consequence to the sin. There is a, some sort form of judgment that is occurring in the midst of that sin. That is why you read verses like Deuteronomy 32 and verse number 29, that he will judge. He's just telling us what he is doing. As you read the Bible, you're just reading an enactment of what God is doing, a history of what he has said and what he has done. Did you think of John chapter 3 and verse number 36? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Interesting. 
He that believeth is forgiven, has the righteousness of God credited to him. But he that believeth not, the wrath of God abideth on him. See, oftentimes we skip over those portions of the Bible. We just kind of go over to the more positive parts. But can I tell you, they're a significant part of the Bible. And God has a holy hatred of sin, an anger against sin, and a punishment of sin. And he tells us that if we have not received Jesus Christ as our Savior, his wrath is abiding on us. Literally, it is resting on us. And ultimately, that wrath will have its full vent, its full fulfillment in hell as the payment for our sins. So as we abide by his law more or less, the judgment will kind of fluctuate back and forth among the unsaved. They'll feel it and not feel it. But ultimately, when they die in their sin, they will feel the full wrath, the full judgment of God upon their sins. Look with me in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So God gives within each of us that moral compass. We have a sense of right and wrong. Everywhere in the world, stealing is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Murder is wrong. That's the moral compass that God gave. It's within you, each one of us. And that moral compass makes us answerable to God. And he says in verse number 7, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So his anger is present in the world. It is exacting a perfect judgment on sin. And the only way that we avoid a holy God's judgment of sin is to come to Jesus Christ, to discard religion, to discard anything that seeks to come between us and Jesus Christ and say, it can atone for sin or it can cover sin. No, the only thing that can atone for my sin, the only thing that can make us righteous in God's sight is the blood of an innocent substitute it is the sinless blood of the Lord Jesus. When he is dying upon that cross, his blood is flowing down the cross. It is the payment for your sin. And God holds that out to each of us, imploring us, begging each of us to trust in his blood, in his death and resurrection. This is the payment for our sin. And that if we will rest in his death and resurrection, then the judgment of God will be lifted. The wrath of God will be removed. We will be accepted in his sight on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So do you see how no church, you could come to a Baptist church, to this church for a hundred years, and uh, if you lived a hundred years, and, and you would never be righteous in God's sight without Jesus Christ. He is the only one, and it is he that we must have that personal relationship with. It is only then that we can 
find the perfect peace and the perfect love that God makes available to each one of us. So there is divine anger, and there is also a righteous human anger. Now, there is a type of anger that we can have. Not every time we have anger is it wrong. Righteous human anger, I'll explain it in a minute, is always has a sense of detachment, a sense of measuring it by God's law. It's accompanied by other positive characteristics. It is just an indignation against what the Bible says is sin. Most of the time, our anger is not that. Most of the time, we're giving vent to what we personally think and personally evaluate, how we viewed situations and people and actions. And based on the rightness or wrongness of that, anger comes out of that. That's a bit different than the righteous human anger. Righteous human anger sees the law of God. It knows the word of God. It is very attuned to what God has said and declared in his word. And it's using that as a measuring rod. It's looking at behavior, words, and actions according to that. And then it has an indignation because God's kingdom has been thwarted. The ways of God are being disrespected. The place of God is not being acknowledged. That's a righteous human anger. Now the third type of anger is a sinful form of human anger. That whole person's response, negative moral judgment against what we perceive to be evil. We act as prosecutor, judge and jury for the actions of another person. If they do not respond in the right way, we view our response as justified, as someone who is legitimate in feeling that way and acting that way. Let's look at an example of this, and maybe it'll make it more clear. Look back with me in Genesis chapter 4. So right at the beginning of the Bible, look at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4 and verse number 3. Genesis chapter 4 and verse number 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain, as Adam and Eve's child, brought forth the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, their other child, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, very angry, and his countenance fell. You see, Cain knew that God required a blood sacrifice to cover their sin. And throughout the history of God's dealing with his people, every time they tried to approach God or have a relationship to God, they always came through a blood sacrifice. So the Jews would have a daily offering. Uh, the blood of, a, of an innocent lamb would, would regularly be shed as an atonement or covering for their sin. And so Cain knows that's what God wants. So why is he becoming angry? Because Cain has kind of twisted it. Cain is now saying, well, God, it's not your way that's the right way. It's, it's what I think is right. And God, um, Abel, he keeps the sheep, and yeah, that's great, but I'm, I'm, I'm a farmer. And here's some cabbage and some potatoes and some carrots. But that's not the way that God said he was to do it, or what God said must be accomplished here. His offering was wrong but he turned it and twisted it and brought God into a negative judgment. Well, God, your way is not right. What you want is not the right way to do things. And he's legitimized his anger. And notice, he begins now to act 
on that anger. Notice what God says to him in verse number six. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? Why are you angry? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shall thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall his be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. He's telling him that Cain, you cannot place your sense of right and wrong above what I have defined as right and wrong. Cain, there is a blood offering, and that is the only thing that will be accepted. But he wasn't acting under that sort of righteousness. And then he enters into the realm of sinful anger, this sense of whole response, negative moral judgment against what he perceives to be evil. He becomes an angry man. He becomes filled with anger. And ultimately, he begins to act on that anger. God is reaching out to him and he's saying, don't underestimate this anger, Cain. Don't think that you can play with anger, that you can be angry, that you can possess anger, because it will taint your character. It will soil your heart. That anger will take you to places that you never thought you would go to. You will say things and you will do things in the midst of anger that you thought you would never say or never do. Deal with the anger. Verse 8, And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass wherein they, when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Wow. Do you see the power of anger? Do you see what <coughs> anger actually does? How anger begins to, begins to move within us and bring us to a point of ruining relationships, of destroying people and situations. It is a destructive thing. It is an evil thing. It is a sinful, very sinful way of thinking and acting. Think about Esau and Jacob. Jacob deceived his brother Esau. He outright tricked him. And Esau, he says, this is wrong. And he doesn't come to him with compassion. And he doesn't say, well, well, Jacob, you know, you did the wrong thing here and you need to repent of this and get right with the Lord. No, Esau comes to him. I want to kill him. He's angry. He, he's taken what belongs to me. That wasn't right. It was mine. And he's taken what is mine. And it's personal. And he's begun to foment, fo formulate an idea on what should happen. He feels justified based on his moral judgment of a perceived evil. And he's acting on that. He is an angry person. He's using anger. Now in his life, think of Balaam. Think of David. Think of Jonah. Think of Moses. Think of the many men in the Bible who are dealing with anger. The Bible's giving you us all kinds of pictures of anger and what it can do in our life. So how do we respond in the right way? So what do we do to deal with anger in a way that is profitable, in a way that is positive. The first thing to remember is if you're ever gonna feel anger arising within you, always measure it against this. It's actual sin. It's not an inconvenience. It's not that I've been slighted or I feel wronged. It's an actual sin that has been committed. It's very narrow. 
This is the biblical definition of, of, of anger. It is actually a transgressing of the law that God has given, and it's precise. Secondly, a righteous human anger always focuses on the Lord and his works. It is not on me and my rights, my interests, and my concerns. The Bible, as we've talked about, is, is teaching us that God is a judge. And the verse that we were learning, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal, make manifest the counsels of the heart. Then shall every man have praise of God. So I'm focusing on God. I'm letting his justice have its perfect place. And I'm pursuing his kingdom in the midst of injustice, in the midst of unrighteousness. Seeing something as offensive is not enough. It must be known as an offense against God and the work that he is doing in our life and in our church and in our world. And righteous anger is also always accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in a godly way. Righteous anger always has control. It always has a sense of wisdom, a sense of compassion in it, a sense of, of perfect righteousness that is in it. And it expresses itself in that way. So if anger expresses itself in a rage, if anger ex expresses itself in rudeness, if anger expresses itself in a blue, icy, cold rejection or ignoring of someone, if anger expresses itself in these carnal ways, it's not righteous anger, it's actually sinful anger that we see. So what does this look like? How can we see what true, true anger is and what true anger looks like? Look at Jesus. Because a few times, rarely, Jesus shows anger. Look with me in John chapter 2 and verse 13. Real quick, John chapter 2 and verse 13. John chapter 2 and verse 13. And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small swords, so he made a kind of a whip of swords, he made it. He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now, it never says Jesus is actually angry. Verse 17, it says, the zeal of his house has eaten him up. So is Jesus' anger here legitimate? Is this a righteous anger? Sometimes Catholics and people will say that Jesus was in a rage. But let's look at this a little bit more closely. First of all, is his reaction a reaction against actual sin? Most certainly. They're stealing. They have, the people have come to make offerings, and they're charging absorbent prices. They have brought animals into the house of God, oxen, uh, horses, and, and, and uh, birds, things that they'll use for their offerings, and other, and other animals, and they're selling them in the temple. And as they sell these animals in the temple, it's sacrilege. It is a misuse of God's house, of what God does in his house. It is stealing. It is charging an absorbent exchange rate. So he is right. It is actually a sin, what they're doing. What else is it? He's consumed with the welfare and advancement of God's house. He doesn't want to leave God's house defiled. 
He wants to bring a sense of righteousness into it. It is a business affair, and the church is not a place for business. The church is not a business. The church is a, is a, is a community of believers where we, where we live selflessly and love each other, not where we try and make money off of each other. It's one of the reasons why I don't think it's good to sell things in church to other people in church, because it is not the purpose of church. Secondly, Jesus responds with order and a level head. No cursing, no raging, no sense where he is out of control. He has the score. He drives out those oxen, pushes out those sheep. He takes those money changers table and flips them and says, come on, out. This is not the place for you. This is not where you do those type of things. So what do we see here? It is a violation of the law of God. He's looking after the welfare of God. It's not personal in any way. He's responding with wisdom, compassion for the abuses of the poor. He's responding in a righteous way for what has happened. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3 and verse number 1. Look at Mark chapter 3. And he entered into the synagogue, and there was a man which had a withered hand, and they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he looked around about them uh, with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was made whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So in John, Mark chapter 3, Jesus is dealing with rebellion. He reveals himself through his miracles. He gives an indication that he is God and he is the one that they should look to. The hatred that they have for him, the lack of mercy or compassion for the man whose hand could be healed. He judges that in this account. Secondly, we see that he is pursuing the kingdom of God. He will not allow them to stop the miracle that should occur. God's work in this situation will not be stopped. He will maintain the purity in his house and in his works and amongst the things that he does. And thirdly, we see that he responded with a level head. He responds with wisdom. He reveals truth in his actions and in his words. So very, very different from a personal slight, from a sense of wrong that is strictly what I've observed and as I've acted as judge and jury, and therefore I feel legitimate in my anger. That is not righteous anger. Righteous anger recognizes sin. It's consumed with God's kingdom. And also, it responds with godly qualities. That's the quality of anger that God allows, that he permits in our lives. Now, this is deeply entrenched anger. So tonight, at 5 p.m., we're going to look a little bit more at the heart and the spiritual resolution to anger and how, through the God's help, we can deal with that anger. So I hope you'll come back for it. But in closing, I like, would like for you to think about how you can have victory over anger. We've got to get to the root of anger. You've got to define anger according to the Bible and allow it to reveal what righteous anger looks like and what sinful anger looks like. The whole person response, that negative judgment of what you perceive to be evil,
That is what sinful anger is. Remember Richard Baxter's quote of what anger is, the rising up of the, in the heart of passionate desire to destroy what we see as a certain evil, which is actually something that would cross us or hinder us of some desired good. Is that sense of feeling cheated, disrespected, and dishonored because of how something has affected me, because of what somebody has said to me, because of how people have treated me, and the anger that is then arising, that hostility is moving us away from the woman that God wants us to be, the man that God wants us to be, a person of love, a person of compassion, a person of true righteousness. It must be an actual transgression. It must be concerned with a consuming interest in God's kingdom. And it must, it must always be something that is accompanied by godly traits and godly